The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. You join me in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, and this evening we will begin in verses 1 through 7. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Gilgamesh, the Aeneid, Beowulf, Paradise Lost, Exodus. What do all of these timeless works of literature have in common? Well, all of them are classified under the literary genre that we call the epic. Now, for many people today, especially for millennials and Gen Zers, the word epic is used to describe something that is big or grandiose or extreme. You often hear of an epic fail or something that is beyond great will be called epic. But the origins of the epic are quite different. The term comes from the ancient Greeks and it simply means word or narrative or song. The earliest epics, some of them I just named for you, they were poems that told a story and they were performed on a stage for an audience, some of them written down, and as a result we still have them and can study them today. But anything that is called an epic has a few general qualities about it that are consistent across the board. For example, an epic always has a hero. In the Iliad, it's Achilles. In the Odyssey, it's Odysseus. In Beowulf, it's it's Beowulf himself who defeats he defeats Grendel who is the huge beast who is a descendant of Cain secondly epics take place in a setting that covers a a large range of places and times as you go along they involve a lot of travel or they take place in one location to identify all of the themes that might vary widely over the human experience so for example in the Aeneid Aeneas travels from the ruins of Troy to Italy where he's going to establish a people to set up the the city of Rome. And along the way, there are soul-searching encounters with questions about human will and man's relationship to the gods and love and war and friendship and enemies and allies. Third, an epic always includes an encounter with the supernatural. Athena, or Zeus, or Ares. An epic always begins in the middle of a larger story. It's assumed that the reader has some knowledge of what has come before. It's sort of a sequel to the previous story. And an epic usually jumps right into the middle of the action, right from the first line. And finally, an epic is generally considered a foundational cultural text. It represents the ideals within the heroes that all of the people in that culture want to live up to, and likewise, the characteristics of the villain that the people wanted to reject. Now, as we come to the book of Exodus, we enter into this literary world 
of the epic. But we, we find our unlikely hero in a man named Moses who faces off with the great villain, Pharaoh. We see a long journey over many years, exploring many of the most important questions of humanity, good and evil, freedom and tyranny, trust in God, the hand of providence, the establishment of a people and the importance of law, and man's relationship with man, man's relationship with God, the consequences of sin, and the power and significance of worship. Now, of course, the most important figure in Exodus is God himself. The entire book of Exodus is really about God. And from beginning to end, we see the work of God amongst his people. We see the judgment of God upon his enemies. We see the sovereignty of God over all creation. We see the salvation of God in his mercy and his grace. We see the law of God in his holiness. We see the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises. And we see the worthiness of God in all of his prescriptions for true worship. Now Exodus picks up in the middle of a storyline, right where Genesis leaves off. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his family of 70 people, they went to Egypt where Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been placed in a position of second in command over all of Egypt. He saved his family from a famine in the land along with all of Egypt, and the Pharaoh offered for the family to live in the land as a safe haven. Eventually, Jacob, Joseph, and all of his brothers die in Egypt, and after about 400 years pass, the story of Exodus begins. Now, this is, of course, a foundational cultural text, and in fact, many people consider Exodus to be the most important book of the Bible. It addresses three of the five most important themes that you will find in the Pentateuch, and the entire book of Genesis we see God establishing the world. But then you get into the Exodus and you see God creating a nation. And in this nation, he reveals his great work of redemption, bringing his people out of slavery into salvation. And so the Exodus was the central and greatest miracle in all the Old Testament. And so we see references and allusions to this book of Exodus all throughout the rest of the Bible, from the Psalms and the prophets that praise God for his work of salvation, to the New Testament writers that reveal the Exodus as a a type of salvation that comes to us now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we do not understand Exodus... We really do not have a complete understanding of one of the most major themes of all scripture to include how we get to the story of the gospel itself. The book is so foundational to our understanding of the Bible that some scholars suggest that all of scripture is simply an extended interpretation of the Exodus itself. And so yes, Exodus is an epic But unlike the Iliad and the Odyssey and Gilgamesh or the Aeneid, we aren't dealing with historical myth that might include historical figures in the midst of a fictional tale. 
We're dealing with real history amongst a real people in relationship with a real God. And for that reason, we can say that Exodus is the great epic in all of literature. And it will do us well to take our time walking through this book in detail to see the great things that God has done. And Lord willing, that's what we plan to do. We will spend however long it takes walking through this great book of Exodus together. So we shall begin at the beginning in verse 1, and we will read through verse 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Well, in the original Hebrew text, the first word of Exodus indicates that this book is a continuation of the story of Genesis. Your translation might say, and, or now, to begin verse 1, which is to suggest that we are picking up right where we left off. But how was it that Joseph and later the rest of his family got into Egypt in the first place. You see there in verse 5, it says that Joseph was in Egypt already, indicating that we have to remember what happened in the book of Genesis. I'm certain most of us know the story. The Lord has spoken. (laughs) But it would do us well to remind ourselves of exactly what has gone on. Well, many years prior, you will recall, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him because he was his father's favorite son, a lot like me. Now, one day, Jacob sent Joseph to be with his brothers as they were pastoring the flock, and he found them at Dothan. And Genesis 37 tells us, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal had devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness." But do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore them to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh. 
on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be put upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And so then the brothers lied to Jacob, saying that Joseph was killed by a fierce animal and Jacob mourned the death of his favorite son while the others provided false comfort to him. And then we read in Genesis 37:36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, of course, many unjust things happened to Joseph, and we read all about all of the ups and downs of his life, but along the way, we learn that in God's providence, he eventually becomes the prince of Egypt. In Genesis 41, the Pharaoh told Joseph, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now, soon after this, of course, Joseph emerges as the great hero of Egypt because for seven years of plenty, he gathers so much grain that it cannot even be measured, knowing that after that would be followed with seven years of famine. And the text says, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, it's at this point that Joseph's brothers, at the direction of their father Jacob, that they were to go to Egypt to buy grain and and Joseph sees them for the first time in many years. And while they, they do not recognize him, he knows exactly who they are. Joseph blesses his family. He inquires of the father and eventually they t- he tells them, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Then, of course, his brothers returned to Canaan, retrieved their father Jacob, and brought him to Egypt. And Jacob said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, in the final chapter of Genesis, we see the death and burial of Jacob in the land of Canaan, where Joseph and his brothers went to bury him. 
And then they returned to Egypt, as we read, beginning in Genesis 50, in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And then one of the greatest verses in all of scripture that reveals the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, Joseph continues, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. And listen to this, because this, this sets the stage for the rest of the book of Exodus. He tells them, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So this is how Israel ends up in Egypt. Over many years, God working over the entire situation, even through the evil hearts of men and through a man who many times along the way, it looks as though he's not going to make it out. Maybe he's going to die in jail, not once, but twice. He's falsely accused. He's forgotten all along the way. The Lord is working it out that eventually he ends up in Egypt and not only in Egypt, but the second in command over all the land. And this is how they end up in Egypt. And at the end of Genesis, we have an indication of what is to come. God will bring his people out of Egypt to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But let's not miss the irony of the situation as it stands. The brothers would never go back to Canaan. The land was there, but it was for their descendants and not for them. Verse 6 tells us, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. And so the families of the men who sold their brother into slavery would end up in slavery themselves, toiling day and night under the harsh conditions of the land and the tyranny of the pharaohs. And so the beginning of Exodus reintroduces us to these 12 sons of Israel, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, and their relatively small family. Look again at verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, 
each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, as you become familiar with these 12 men, it's remarkable to note that they are not significant in any way, let alone the fact that they are part of the grand story of redemption and God's plan to establish a people. Even though Joseph had risen to power in Egypt, it wasn't a power that was going to be passed down to his family. Once he died, his authority in the land died with him. They certainly weren't tipping the scales toward righteousness or moral excellence. These men weren't powerful leaders of society. They weren't intellectual heavyweights that were highly sought after. They weren't very respected even. They were ordinary men. They were unrighteous sinners and they had a sordid past. They were, for all intents and purposes, a lot like you and me. And in the end, the only thing we can say that the sons of Israel had a value, and we can agree the only thing that ultimately matters is a great God. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would make from them a great nation and that that nation would dwell in the land of Canaan. And then in chapter 17, God said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. When Abraham was a hundred, and his wife Sarah, ninety-nine, their son Isaac was born. At the most unlikely time, in the most unlikely scenario, with the most unlikely people, God began to fulfill his covenant promise. And so is it any surprise that we see Jacob and his son emerge in the story. Now, perhaps for those who pay little attention to what God does and with whom he does it, perhaps for those who think that it's earthly power and notoriety and influence that matter, perhaps for those who forget that the Savior of the world was born of a teenage virgin girl in a stable, and selected he who selected simple fishermen and tax collectors to be his disciples. Perhaps for those who forget that God has said he uses the weak and powerless and the small and foolish things of the world to shame the strong. But for those who, knew, who know God, for those who pay attention to God and what he does and how he does it, this shouldn't come as any surprise at all. God will fulfill his covenant promise. And so from the very beginning of Exodus, it becomes clear to us that these 12 brothers have been part of God's plan all along. Despite their wickedness, despite their conniving ways, despite their selfishness and pride and dependence on their own finite wisdom, in the infinite wisdom of God, His plans are far more significant than what anyone who is not paying attention would ever assume. But God does fulfill his promise. And right here, we see it all beginning to emerge with greater clarity. In verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. 
they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This great nation that was promised was beginning to take shape. They began with 70, but soon the land was filled with them. In Deuteronomy 26, the Lord commands his people to remember what he did. He told them as they came before him to respond before him by saying, A wandering uh, Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And so what is left for God to do? The people are taking shape. The nation is emerging in great numbers. And so in the Exodus, we will see the journey to the fulfillment of his other promise that he made to Abraham, and that is a land to call their own. But you see, the importance of the 12 tribes of Israel, it really isn't so much their lineage. It's not the parents. It's not their skills. It's not their gifts or their abilities. It's not how they look or where, they, where they're from or how they got there. The importance of these people is that they are God's people. They are the people of a covenant-keeping God, a sovereign God, a God who loves and protects and guides his people, a God who makes the impossible possible, a God full of compassion and mercy, and grace, and forgiveness. A God who forgives wickedness, and rebellion, and sin, even though his people are prone to bicker, and fight, and rebel, and give in to all kinds of fleshly temptations on the journey to a promised land. There will be times in this narrative when we will be tempted to look at the Israelites and say, you're dull, you're stupid, You're unbelievably dense. But we must be quick to remind ourselves that when we look in the mirror, we're looking at a person who's no better than the sons of Israel. Even as Christians, there will be times when we are obstinate and stubborn when it comes to obeying our God who rescues us from death and hell. We too can be conniving and boastful We too can be selfish and prideful. We too can seek to live upon our own finite wisdom instead of the infinite wisdom of God. We too can seek to live upon our own finite goodness instead of the infinite goodness of God. And so the epic of Exodus is very much about God establishing a people. But we, brothers and sisters, we are that people. We are the people who were in slavery and had to be led out of bondage to make the journey to the promised land. We are the people who are tempted to look back to our old lives and long for the chains of slavery instead of enjoying the freedom that we have in Christ. We are the people who were nothing in the eyes of the world but were made to be the sons and daughters of God. We were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We are a people 
who despite our own unwillingness and our own rebellion and our own corruption had the blood of the lamb smeared on our very own doorposts. Not because we deserve it, not because we're better or smarter or more noble or more honorable than anyone else, but because God has a people and his people are his possession and will not be left in the slavish chains of sin. Indeed, we can rejoice with those great words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last. I thank God I'm free at last. Now, friend, can you truly say that you're free at last? You see, the story of the Exodus is the glorious story of a God who calls his people out of the darkness and into the light. It is the story of a God who sees us in bondage, laboring day and night for bread that does not fill us and water that does not quench, and who comes to us and says, I will give you the bread of life. I will give you the water of life. Come, eat, drink. Come without money. Come without gold or silver or any such thing. Come as you are, broken, beaten, tired, sick, and sore. Come and I will give you rest. I will give you respite. I will give you relief. I will give you hope. I will give you a future. Come and I will guide you. Come and I will call you my own. Come and I will protect you. And so friend, the God of the Exodus is the God who calls you to come. To come and to look to the Lamb whose blood was shed that you might have everlasting life in the promised land of God. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that you cannot live. You are in fetters. You are in the chains of sin, making bricks without straw, building a civilization for yourself that will crumble to the ground. But Jesus fulfilled all that God commanded perfectly and without sin. And then he was hung on a cross, raised on a pole like the serpent in the wilderness, that when we look to him by faith, we will live. Friend, will you look to Jesus? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this exodus from slavery to freedom will be your very own story. The truth is that even to this day, The people of God are multiplying and growing exceedingly strong so that the land will be filled. Amongst every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, God continues to call his own to build his church. He lovingly and gladly takes the nothings and nobodies of this world and he says, you are mine. You are my children. You are my people. And what we will see throughout Exodus is that our God is a faithful, trustworthy, covenant-keeping God. He establishes His plan and He fulfills His plan despite our sinfulness and despite our failures. 
Now, as we read this greatest of all epics, we will be cut to our hearts when we see ourselves in the wandering Israelites. But we will be continually refreshed and restored when we are reminded of the God that we serve. We will recount our journey from this world that we thought that we loved. We will remember how the enemy was on one side and an uncrossable chasm was on the other, but the Lord made a way that we could walk on dry land to the other side. We will be reminded that God provides for our every need, even when we find ourselves in a dry and weary land. We will be confronted with our own unwillingness to submit ourselves to God's perfect law, our impatience with God's timing, and the forgiveness that we find when we least deserve it. We will see that the call of God upon the lives of his people is for holiness and righteousness, and godliness, and an unwavering trust in the God who knows all things and does all things well. We will be shown the way of justice. We will be shown the blessing of mercy. We will be confronted with the idolatry of our hearts and be shown that true worship consists of our dwelling and communing with God himself. We will be brought from the mud pits, through the water, to the desert, to the top of the mountain, finally to dwell in the tabernacle of God where he will meet with us, his people. Brothers and sisters, an epic journey awaits us, the people of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this central story of all of Scripture, this great thing that you have done in establishing for yourself a nation, a nation made up of nothings and nobodies in this world who you have called your own. And Lord, we count it the greatest privilege in this life and the life to come to be those very people. We pray, O God, that as we set ourselves on this epic journey to look at what you have done for your people and all the ways that you have worked to show your glory, we pray, O God, that our hearts would be filled with praise, that our communion with you would be ever strengthened, and that you would show us yet again, O God, just how trustworthy you truly are. And we pray you would do all of this for your glory, for the good and strengthening of your church. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.